Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. If you ask me, the process of running for governor in Virginia, it seems to have been designed to make politicos nervous. Here's why. Since the mid-1800s, Virginia has held off-year gubernatorial elections. That means a couple of things. First, there's no drafting off some popular presidential nominee or superstar senator. You got to build your own coalition. Second, since there aren't that many other elections to talk about, this race is guaranteed to get a ton of attention. And because the northern tip of this state is nestled right next to Washington, D.C., you can't hide from the political strategists and journalists who are looking to divine meaning from your electorate. This year, the final gubernatorial debate, it was hosted not by some local television anchor or the host of a public radio call-in show. Good evening, I'm Chuck Todd, and welcome to the Virginia gubernatorial debate between Democrat and former Governor Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin. Instead, it was hosted by Chuck Todd of NBC's Meet the Press. Get that out of the way. We know you're enjoying both. And with that, let's begin. Mr. Yunkin, your 90-second opening statement. The people on the stage that night were Democrat Terry McAuliffe. He served as governor of Virginia four years back. And Republican Glenn Youngkin. He has never been elected to anything. But weirdly, it's working for him. There's huge amounts of people turning up to Youngkin rallies. So we're seeing this kind of um, energy on the right. Ben Pavier is covering this race for VPM in Richmond. And when I asked him to compare that Republican energy to what's been happening with the Dems, he said this. There's a, a group of very plugged in Democrats who are very concerned about that and are very activated around this election. I think there's a lot of people who are tired by the last four years, five years, and have tuned this one out a little bit, especially on the left. That apathy is giving Democrats hives especially because they are playing defense. When was the last time a Republican won statewide office in Virginia? 2009. So uh, 11, like 12 years? Yes. Do you think of Virginia as a swing state? Hmm. This election, I guess, is putting that theory to a test. If Republicans can't win this year, maybe that's the final sort of stamp of death on swing state status for Virginia. Some would also say maybe Republicans are due for a win. You could also say that. Yeah, I think they have never quite had their stars aligned as well as they do this year. Today on the show, Virginia's gubernatorial election is under the microscope. We'll talk about why. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Part of the reason you're hearing so much about this Virginia governor's race is that for the last decade or so, there's been a story political people have told themselves about this state. It goes like this. Suburban voters have been turning against ugly Republican talking points. And as a result, an increasingly diverse and urbane place like Virginia is getting purpler and purpler. It was an historic night in Virginia tonight where Democrats have won control of the state house and the state senate for the first time in the 21st century. Let's go to Steve Just 2 years back, Democrats were celebrating an immense victory that flipped the state house of delegates and the state senate. The governor and both senators were Dems too. It seemed like a turning point. You're not really looking at a swing state anymore, Lawrence. You're looking at a blue state. Yeah, and that is what. But Ben Pavier, he says the tight margins in this year's gubernatorial contest, they've made some people start to question this logic. The polls have become closer and closer. McAuliffe has, um, I think, around a three point edge in the average of polls. That seems like it's almost the margin of error. Exactly. It, it I think, is really going to come down to turnout. And so what we're seeing is both candidates really trying to gin up enthusiasm, make sure people know there's an election and just get them to the polls. The national mute is hugely important in Virginia. Um, There's a tradition stretching back 30 plus years that the party that uh, won the White House loses Virginia's off year election the next year. They lose the governor's race in Virginia the next year. The only person to break that streak was Terry McAuliffe in 2013. The fact that their candidate this year beat the odds last time around is one of the things giving Democrats hope. Governors in Virginia are prohibited from serving consecutive terms, which is why McAuliffe is running again after this four-year break. He's been a party stalwart for decades. He was a fundraiser, um, head of the DNC for for a stretch in the early 2000s. Um, He was a fundraiser for the Clintons. Exactly. Tight connections to... um, Yeah, a number of high profile Democrats and staged his first run in 2009, didn't win the nomination. Um, Democrats ended up losing that year in Virginia, ran again in 2013, pulled off a narrow win against Ken Cuccinelli, um, Republican who uh, briefly served for a stretch in the Trump administration down the road. And McAuliffe presided over a legislature that was heavily Republican. So you know, he faced challenges in getting much done. And I think he spent a lot of his time focusing on economic development. He was all over the place trying to um, ink economic deals that would bring jobs and manufacturing and that kind of thing to Virginia. It sounds like such an old school Democrat kind of vibe. Very much so. I mean, he's somebody who backed the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, this um, this big infrastructure project that was going to come through Virginia, which which was canceled last year. He, he kind of ran on that platform as a, as a centrist Democrat, which has played very well with the Virginia electorate in the last 20 years. And, you know, his tune has changed a little bit since then. But I think he is still running on what he what he did 
as governor, particularly his his economic development and focusing on jobs, on the economy, those sorts of things. Was there ever a doubt that Terry McAuliffe would be the nominee? Because it seems to me that he is this kind of old school candidate. Like, was there ever a thought that maybe, I don't know, we should have like a, a black woman running for governor in Virginia? Funny you should mention that, Mary. Yes, there were two black women in the race, in the primaries race. And I think um, his entrance in the race really changed it. I think once he was there, it was uh, it was going to be hard to unseat him because of money, because of influence. I mean, McAuliffe, um, by all accounts, is deeply connected to the Democratic Party in Virginia. Um, some staff from the, from the party went straight to his campaign. Um, so this was somebody with just a lot of resources. And I think for these other candidates, um, there was a delegate, Jennifer Carroll Foy, former delegate, um, and then a state senator in the Richmond area, uh, uh, Jennifer McClellan. Um, both of, you know, they, they didn't quite have the same level of connections and resources. And uh, the the primary wasn't close. I mean, uh, McAuliffe won it in a blowout. As a longtime Democratic operative, it seems to me like the major selling point of Terry McAuliffe is his connection to D.C. But we're at such a funny moment where Joe Biden is working like hell to get his agenda passed, but reaching a lot of roadblocks when it comes to the Senate and Congress. How is he handling that on the campaign trail? Recently, he has really stepped up calls for Congress to pass the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package. Uh, We've got frustration with Washington. You know, why haven't we passed this infrastructure bill? I have been very straight on television. We're tired of the chitty chat up in Washington. Get in a room and get this figured out. I think he wants a tangible win to take voters on the campaign trail from this administration and from the Democratic control of Congress. That said, I don't think that's his only platform. I think he could still win if they don't do that. It's quite likely they won't do that before Election Day. So, um, you know, he's also talking a lot about the pandemic and a lot about Donald Trump. And I think those other issues could um could help him. We'll see. You say he's talking a lot about Donald Trump. I guess that leads us to talk about the Republican nominee, uh, Glenn Youngkin, who is doing this funny two-step of being a Republican in a state with a history of conservatism, but that over the last few years has done this step back from Republican base politics. So how is Youngkin presenting himself? Like, is he presenting himself as a someone who's aligned with Trump? It's it's a it's a real dance um, with Youngkin on the relationship with Trump. Um, it's worth pointing out that a, I think a year ago, so few Republicans even knew who Glenn Youngkin was. Um, you know, he was a he had stepped down as CEO of the Carlyle Group, this private equity firm. Um, he was not a known name in Virginia politics by any by any stretch of the imagination. His name started to kind of percolate as a potential candidate. Has he ever been in public service before? Never been in public service. Um, something he stresses a lot um, on the ca- on the campaign trail, and he just kind of swooped into the scene um, for this Republican nomination fight. And you know, I, I went to I remember going to an event. Uh, I think it was in April or May before before they um, they held this convention, and the, some of the other candidates were there and spoke. Um, and they had kind of low key presence. And then Youngkin came in and like you could tell there was a sort of celebrity 
almost aura around him in, among Republicans, even at that point. Um, you know, people rushed, kind of rushed over to take their photos. Just because he had a lot of money? He had already sort of established his name. He was buying TV ads, TV ads, which, as you mentioned, in some cases, talked about his connection to Trump. Trump mentioned, you know, the Carlisle group and his uh, his name in a speech once, and they, they used that clip in years, early ads. But President Trump brought together real business leaders like Glenn Youngkin and stood up to China. Glenn Youngkin of Carlisle, great group. And so he was running as somebody who could hold the Trump base together, but who could also appeal to a certain kind of, you know, maybe moderate voter who has drifted away from Republicans. Um, I've heard him described as a country club Republican. He's somebody who like, you know, he's tall, he's handsome, he's charismatic. When you meet him, he's very personable. And I think he's on the, a lot of the campaigns he spent talking about things like education and eliminating the grocery tax. And, and so he's kind of talking to the Trump base at moments and then also talking to these other voters. And, you know, at least if the polls are to be believed, he's he's seems to be successfully threading that needle, whether it'll win him the election. That's another story. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like Mitt Romney 2.0 or something. Um, I think he would be flattered by that <laughs> comparison, probably, <laughs> although, you know, his supporters, probably some of them would not be. Um, he's built an interesting tent. You know, there's people like State Senator Amanda Chase in Virginia, who has gotten paid visits to Arizona to watch the uh, air quote audit that happened there. Um, she's been someone who stumped quite a bit for him, um, says, talks a lot about election integrity and how Yunkin's going to strengthen elections. Yunkin himself has made various nods to that. You know, he was very evasive early on on whether there was any widespread fraud when I asked him that um, back in the convention. And then as soon as he won the convention, his his tune changed. He said Biden was legitimately elected president. His campaign actually took down some some videos of his old videos around certain topics like election integrity. Um, and he still talks about it, but I think it's not the issue that that he's personally taking to the polls. He's relying on um, other surrogates to kind of carry that message to the, the more um, kind of Trump aligned base. He had this decision point last week because Steve Bannon wanted to hold a rally for him. What happened? Yeah. So that rally um, what happened in suburban Richmond and Steve Bannon is actually uh, a resident of the Richmond area. It was a litany of uh, conspiracy theories around the 2020 election. Um, Bannon had some pretty incendiary rhetoric around getting in people's faces. Look, I think some pretty extraordinary action are going to have to be taken with with, uh, you know, as far as protest and getting up into people's grill politely, like but strongly of this. There was there was a lot of, um, I think, material from the Trump days that that showed Trump's movement is is alive and well. And Trump himself phoned in to uh, endorse Youngkin again. And I think it's wonderful that you gathered together. And it's an appropriate name. Take back Virginia rally. And I'll tell you what, Glenn Youngkin is a great gentleman. And I really believe that Virginia is very, very winnable. And I think the moment that kind of crystallized this event was when uh, the organizers brought out a flag that they said was flown over, in their words, a peaceful rally on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. And the crowd pledged allegiance to this flag. For which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and Oof. justice. That, of course, made some headlines the next day. And Yunkin at first kind of dodged questions around whether he endorsed that kind of action and then ultimately 
distanced himself from it. He said it was weird and wrong to pledge allegiance to the to that flag. Um, he didn't disavow Trump, which is something McAuliffe and the Democrats wanted to hear from him. So, you know, it's it's kind of uh, speaks to the the position that, that Youngkin's in, I think, with the Republicans broadly. You know, I think part of the challenge is that if, if you look at a candidate like Glenn Youngkin, the, the Trumpier he is, the better it is for the Democrats. And so they're kind of embracing this, you know, rush to push him into the same boat as Trump. They went as far as chartering a plane over Mar-a-Lago to sort of taunt Donald Trump over Youngkin because Youngkin wouldn't campaign with him. And it just seems like the trolling on both sides, it makes the situation intractable where they're not actually talking about what might matter to voters. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's frustrating as a politics reporter to try to get through to um, the issues. What I, do the voters say to you? Like when you talk to them about this race, like do they roll their eyes? Not completely. I think they, especially the voters who are solidly in one camp, feel like there are real policy decisions at stake, you know, particularly around abortion, around voting rights and voting access, um, you know, around education and school curriculum on the on the on the right. Um, I do think people very strongly believe that there's policies that will change and be affected by who's nominated. But I think the tenor of the rhetoric is very much kind of aligned with the, you know, the the general national mood and the national political debate, which seems to be seeping, you know, down not just to the state, but to school boards where, you know, we've seen people harassed and, um, there's these there's really intense meetings about uh, whether in Virginia's case, whether to adopt policies that protect transgender students or whether to ban the teaching of critical race theory in schools. And so I, I think from my vantage point here, and I'm not plugged into all levels, I, I think it seems like those debates seem to be, if anything, saturating further down and getting more and more local. When we come back how the national debate over critical race theory became so central in Virginia's race for governor. Stick around. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. 
Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Before this governor's race was attracting so much attention, Virginia was making headlines for another reason. Raucous, drawn-out school board meetings where parents were waging a battle over what they called critical race theory. The meetings in one district, Loudoun County, got especially contentious, and they were recorded. There was a big outcry there that that the teachers, because they'd gone through trainings um, on on racial sensitivity, on on fighting discrimination. I'm paraphrasing here. I don't I don't know the details of those trainings, but that they um, that there was critical race theory was an element in some of those trainings, and therefore I think that got kind of exploded into this idea that critical race theory was pervasive in schools, and and that students were being taught white students in particular being taught to to hate themselves. And people might remember the images in particular, like when I think of Loudoun County and the debate there, I think of this one particular image of a, 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 I assume it was a parent, but a person who had been in a school board meeting being dragged away by police. You need to be arrested! I believe the school board meeting was shut down. People were so loud and so upset. Public comment is now ended. We will move to our next agenda item. So how did that debate, which had been going on last spring and maybe a little bit in the summer, how did it become such a big part of the governor's race now in the fall? I think it's just because for Republicans, they see the amount of energy and and anger uh, on, on some of their supporters and some conservatives, and they see that as a, a channel to win, and I think Yunkin has highlighted this comment that McAuliffe made in a debate that um, parents shouldn't be telling teachers what to teach. To veto bills, veto books, Glenn, not to be knowledgeable about it, also take them off the shelves. And I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually you take books out and make their own decisions. You vetoed it. So, to yeah, I, parents, you stop the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. He was referring to a bill that he vetoed that... Um, would have allowed, I think, parents to uh, to screen out some books from schools' libraries. There was a Toni Morrison book that that uh, they thought was an objectionable. It was called the Beloved Bill, mm. I think. And the key thing was that I believe it was the parents could decide what they felt was inappropriate or sexually explicit and pull things from the curriculum or shelves. And... McAuliffe vetoed it because the opinion was the schools should be deciding what the kids are learning. Exactly. And I think Youngkin has taken that that soundbite of McAuliffe saying that and turned it into TV ads and digital ads. Virginia parents have a right to make decisions on their children's education. That's the Virginia I grew up in. Terry McAuliffe wants to change that. And um, I mean, that has been their kind of take home message that uh, parents are being stripped of their rights to to control their children's education, and that somehow it's being controlled by radicals who are, are truly rewriting the curriculum of the state for the worse. Does that ring true to the voters you talk to? I think it rings true certainly to those those Republican activists. And, you know, it's hard to know with I, certainly Democrats don't believe that to be true. Fact checkers don't believe that to be true. It's not true that critical race theory is being taught across Virginia school system. Um, 
you know, there's there's not some some huge movement to um, tell white students that they are lesser than other students. I think there is a recognition from states school systems, um, the state school systems that they need to do a, a better job being more inclusive with history. And in Loudoun County, that's how this all began, was that there was a, a eternal report about problems with um, students feeling marginalized and, and some of the discrimination they'd faced and the bullying they'd received. And so some of the changes that parents are reacting to were put in place um, as a means to try to correct that. And so I think we're seeing school systems, you know, change, make changes to their history curriculum here and there, that kind of thing. There's not, I think, some top-down effort to um, malign white students or or anything like that. And as for whether it connects to voters, I mean, I think it depends a lot on the voters. And I haven't, frankly, talked enough to enough moderate voters or swing voters to know how that's playing with them. Political operatives are looking to Virginia to give them guidance. Will these school board fights drive voters to the polls? If so, you might be hearing a lot more about critical race theory in the 2022 midterm elections. But Ben, he's not so sure that Virginia's experience is going to map cleanly onto other states. It's something I think about a lot with the sort of national attention Virginia gets. I think partly just based on it's kind of a vaguely swingy state you know, right next to D.C. I, and especially at this point, um, you know, Virginia's demographics have changed so much. I don't know that that the results, um, you know, if McAuliffe wins as the polling show, he's on track to, even if narrowly, that that will, you know, give us a clear message about about 2022. A lot could happen in between. The pandemic has been so unpredictable. Virginia likes to think of itself as a microcosm for the rest of the country, but is it really? I mean, I don't I don't know that, you know, it's such a complicated uh, state, but I, I don't know that the state encapsulates the whole of the country's political mood at one moment. Um, there's just so many factors that go into winning. And, and, and in this case, you know, money is important. You know, the Democrats have a huge cash advantage. They have um, resources at their at their ready. And um, I think if Republicans win, then that maybe is something of an index on the national mood. But whether it's a prediction or whether it, you know, there's there's some like deeper message in that for the political fortunes going forward. I, I don't know that that's really the case. Well, it's interesting because this race is often talked about as a barometer for Democrats, you know, because they have more at stake here. They've been winning elections in Virginia for so long at this point, a little more than a decade. But it is also a barometer for Republicans to be like, OK, but what if our party isn't Trump's party, but is Trump curious, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like a we're just like like next to Trump, but we're not like we're not Trump. And it'll be interesting to see if that is how Republicans look at this, too, when this is all over. Youngkin has faced questions from reporters like, would you have certified the results of the 2020 election if you were in Congress? Um, oh, what does he say? He didn't really answer it first when I think it was Axios reporter who asked him this. Uh, he dodged the question. He said, well, the, the wonderful thing, and I'm paraphrasing here, is that I'm not running for Congress. And then, you know, <laughs> Axios ran the story and then his, his campaign put out a statement saying, um, well, uh, you know, I, I definitely would have certified the results of the 2020 election. He's, he said repeatedly 
that he he believes Biden was legitimately elected and that there was no no widespread fraud. And so he said those things, but also he gets asked these questions that that harken back to the 2020 election. Trump is still talking about the 2020 election. So whether they can stay Trump curious, <laughs> uh, you know, as Trump kind of reemerges into the political scene after January 6, I think Youngkin has has faced those questions, and, and I'm sure Republican nominees for Congress will will face those questions, given some of Trump's recent comments. When you are working the phones right now, talking to your sources about the gubernatorial election, I mean, to some extent, I guess at this moment in time, it would always be tense. People would always be like, oh, my God, it's almost the end. But can you characterize what it's like to get on the phone with operatives from either side at this point? Like, are, are they just both stretched and stressed and feel like it could go either way? I am definitely sensing lots of tension and stress. Um, I think the candidates are becoming increasingly wary around reporters, particularly Yunkin. That's always been true for him. But now they're 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 being especially careful about um, any sort of chance encounters with reporters who might ask him about Trump or um, the election or anything like that. Um, McAuliffe's people, you know, <laughs> I was at an event on Friday and and they were, you know, making sure the press were like very kind of closely consigned to our, our little area. I think that, yeah, tensions are high. I mean, the stakes are high and, and people feel like this is a really close race. You hear that, you hear that urgency from the candidates. I, I've noticed a change in tone with McAuliffe recently where he's, he's kind of emphasizing that this is a close race. I think he, he seemed a little more confident to my eyes um, this summer, um, more sure of himself. And I think that reflects the fact that the polling has narrowed. I think Democrats seem more worried. Republicans in some ways are the underdog. So I think they feel like if they manage an upset, great. It would be certainly disappointing if they lost, but I don't think it would shock anybody. Ben Pavier, I'm really grateful for you joining. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Mary. Ben Pavier is a state politics reporter for VPM in Richmond, Virginia. And that is our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Daniel Hewitt, Davis Land, Mary Wilson, and Elena Schwartz. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter, see the costume I'm workshopping for my dog for Halloween. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> 